0: Good morning. I wanna um, talk to you this morning about knowing persons and uh, getting to know persons. So to do that, I wanna play a little game with you. Um, I want you to take a look at these slides. I'm gonna put a picture up and I want you to raise your hand if you could identify who these persons are. If you can, raise your hand. Okay, great. Anybody wanna tell me their individual names? Who knows? Yes, Lindsay. Thank you. All right. So yes, we recognize these persons. We say, okay, we know these people, right? We know these persons. This is, a, this is the, the people who are responsible for all this great music in the 1960s, 1970s. These people who um, were so innovative. Every album, you know, they actually stopped touring at a certain point very early and all they did was produce albums. But the albums that came out were just so groundbreaking. Each one had this kind of Uh, way in which it pushed the envelope, very uh, influential, Uh, great genius, right? Okay, I want you to tell me, who can raise their hand and tell me who this person is? You're not sure? Nobody. Okay, isn't that interesting? Well, this is a person that you should know. If you're really into the Beatles, his name is George Martin. And this was the man who produced every one of those Beatles albums, except, I think, Let It Be. And when you actually get into it, if you actually stepped into the the Beatles family, the world of the Beatles, you would find that this was the man who was responsible for so much of the innovation on those albums he was a man who did all the horn arrangements. He's the one who did all of the strings arrangements. He, was, he basically invented the eight-track recording machine in order to do Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. He was the one who scored all of the Yellow Submarine. This is a man who is really in the studio actually making this happen. You don't even know him. And yet, this was a man responsible for all this innovation. You know, they would do interviews with George Martin. Sometimes he was involved, and they'd be like, "Oh, the Beatles are so creative," and not to take away from John and Paul and their songwriting, right? But the Beatles are so—they're such innovators, such genius—and he would smile, you know. And um, he—you could tell he wasn't really offended that he wasn't getting credit. But wouldn't it be better if you really want to know the Beatles, if you really want to know someone? Wouldn't it be better to have credit given? credits due. Wouldn't it be better to know that this was a genius that was also involved, eventually got to be called at one point the fifth Beatle because of the influence he had on these groundbreaking records, right? So you can actually do this with a number of different uh, scenarios. You think that you know someone, like you probably know this person, you're like, oh, I know George Lucas, but you probably don't know Irvin Gershner, um, also actually crucial informing the Star Wars saga, this director of the second film. Very important. And you can go through a lot of phenomena and you say, ah, who gets the credit for this? Um, and you can think of a person you would give the credit to, but really when you get into it, when you step into the world, you step into the group and get to know the persons, uh, you find that actually uh, you're surprised by that. And I wanted, to, I wanted to think about that this way. I wanted to think about knowing persons, because our religion, Christianity, is about knowing God. That's what we're about here. I don't know if you've realized this. I don't know why you came to Christ, why you're in this religion, but this is what our religion is about. It's about knowing God. It extends to us the promise of not just knowing, but really knowing the one over all things, the creator of all things. Really knowing God. In fact, one time, Jesus was talking with some folks about eternal life. This is John 17, and he says, you know, you want to know what eternal life is? You really want to know what eternal life is? It's this. Knowing the true God. Knowing God truly. That's what eternal life really is about. Knowing God truly. And, he throws in, knowing Jesus Christ. He says, he's, Jesus suggesting, even at that point, that knowing God involves knowing more than one person. But this is what our, our, our whole program is about, Christianity is about. And kids, if you're doodling, this is why you're doodling what you're doodling, getting this invitation and then getting this letter and finding a surprise inside. Really getting to know God. Unlike... Uh, you know, some other religions say Islam. Islam, another monotheistic religion, is not about knowing God. And you can go through the Quran, won't find much about actually that promise of knowing God. certainly Islam is about understanding God's will and trying to follow God's will and being blessed by God, but not knowing God. Um, And the great kind of teachers of Islam would uh, say the same thing about this unless unless you're Sufi if you're Sufi then you know you don't mind contradicting parts of the Quran it's kind of a growth within uh, Islam but Orthodox Islam is not about knowing God Christianity this is the distinctive very much the promises to know God and that promise friends is nowhere more present than in the last book of the Bible That book which we are going to open today, the book of the Bible that comes at the end, the book we call Revelation, or the Greek, Apocalypse, that book is a book that ties up everything in the Bible, or tries to, with impressive uh, comprehension. It brings together all the different themes of the Bible and, and brings them to a close and a climax, consummation at the end. This book of the Bible, Revelation. And we're excited. I hope you're excited. We're going to be opening it today and beginning a series about it. And it reveals a lot of things. We're going to see. uh, It's a wild book. Reveals a lot of things to us. Very exciting. The first thing it reveals to us is God. Please stand with me as we begin with the chapter 1, verse 1 of the book. And I'm going to be reading the NIV version. It's printed in your bulletin. You can follow along. Or you can read in your Bible. Again, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Okay, we're going to get God here. And actually, we get God in the greeting. Right there in verses 4 through 5, we have what starts out as kind of a common Uh, salutation in the New Testament letters because this is a book that is a letter as well as a prophecy as well as an apocalypse and in this greeting we have something that we might recognize grace and peace coming but grace and peace are coming from this entity and in always always in these letters the grace and peace is coming from God but here very interesting it's coming from three different entities. There are three apo, statements in the Greek, three phrases, meaning from in the Greek. And the first is God, coming from God, coming from Christ. And then also this other entity, coming from equally. This is a really a, a Trinitarian salute that we're getting. Now, you might get thrown off because the middle one is these seven spirits. It says from also the seven spirits that are standing before the throne. What does that mean? Well, this brings us um, to the first lesson about Revelation. Uh, to, it, it, you might start to think, well, you might think at first, well, maybe he's talking about some angels or something else that God created. But, it, it, you know, that's not the way that word is used. The word pneuma in Greek or spirit Very rarely, almost non-existently, in early Christianity is used to mean an angel. Almost never, and certainly never in the book of Revelation. There are angels in the book of Revelation, even in this passage, right here in the first verse. That's not the spirit. Well, then if it's not like an angel or something God created, then what is it? And again, this is the first lesson of the book of Revelation, that numbers are really important, and they're symbolic. Very often, numbers in the book of Revelation are taken literally. They really shouldn't be because in this method of writing, in this apocalyptic genre, numbers are symbolic, highly symbolic, very important. And there is no number that is more important in the book of Revelation than the number seven. And that is, is symbol for something that means the fullness Seven symbolizes completeness, being filled up with something. So you might even better think of this as sevenfold. So for example, in Revelation 4, it talks about these seven spirits. This title comes up again, the seven spirits. And in the seven spirits, all of a sudden, there are seven fires from a lamp. And so you can think of it, it's like, we were reading, reading about Pentecost. There were these different tongues of fire, but really one fire, one spirit, right? And so here, seven fires, seven tongues of fire, really one fire, right? One spirit is what we're talking about. And so if you uh, are drawing this, children, this is why you're drawing the lampstand with seven fires that actually become one fire, You can see this especially clearly in the Old Testament parallels, again, the book of Revelation is tying up everything in the Bible, and as I said, it's impressively comprehensive, taking all the different themes of the Bible, bringing them together in consummation in one. And in the book of Isaiah, for example, Isaiah chapter 11, God is speaking about his spirit, and he says, you know, this is, my spirit is the spirit of wisdom, and the spirit of might, and the spirit of knowledge. And actually, in the Septuagint version of this verse, there are seven virtues that are listed. Very interestingly, seven virtues. The spirit of these different things really is one spirit, right? But of spirit of seven virtues, the sevenfold spirit they're talking about. Or you go back to Zechariah, the book of Zechariah. Again, a big source book for the book of Revelation. A lot of, uh, some very key important images from the book of Revelation actually begin our first scene in the book of Zechariah. You can read in Zechariah 4 how, again, God is speaking about his spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit. And again, it's described as seven fires of a lampstand, which are also the seven eyes of God. So we're not really talking about seven as seven different things. One thing but sevenfold, the fullness of God's looking at the earth and seeing all that's going on. And in the book of Revelation, the seven fires, the fullness of God's spirit working for the churches. So I want to take a few minutes just to make sure we can grasp that this morning, that when this title comes up in the book, just so you can kind of register with that and think of this this way. Like in Revelation 3, for example, it's said that Jesus has, again, this seven, seven spirits. He has them, and then all of a sudden the spirits become Jesus Christ's seven, seven eyes. Again, the fullness of God looking at the world, and then they become the seven horns. So just so you can recognize that and understand that what's being talked about here is one The sevenfold Spirit. We're really talking about the Holy Spirit in this apocalyptic symbolism, if I could put it that way. Which means, friends, that this really is a Trinitarian greeting. That this grace and peace is equally coming from the Father, the one who is, who was, and is to come, from the sevenfold Spirit, and from the one who freed us from our sins. It's really talking about the Trinity. And that, friends, if we want to know God, is something we need to press into and know. Because this is what the book promises to us, that the book will reveal to us God as, maybe not as we want him to be, maybe not as we, like, this makes us uncomfortable. It's like, why, don't mess me up. I'm trying to, trying to think about God and, and understand who God is. Why are you talking to me that he's one God but three persons? It kind of confuses us, and we don't want to mess up the picture, but this is not God as we necessarily want him to be but this is God as God is being revealed to us and the, the book of revelation we can say in doing this is the most trinitarian book of the new testament with maybe the exception of the gospel of john the most trinitarily developed the most the one that has the strongest Trinitarian theology in it, where you really see the persons of God acting uh, in distinctive ways, things that we can attribute to God, to the different persons, uh, highly reflective of the consciousness of God, most developed. So with all that what the book of Revelation reveals to us, it's really revealing to us God. And we can see this throughout when you see the different persons of God, distinguished, and yet they're somehow also equal, right? So uh, we look at even verse 1. You see that the first and Christ function together. Revelation comes from both. Verse 2, the word of God is paired there just as, throughout, as it is throughout the book of Revelation with the testimony of Christ. Two different ways of saying the same thing. And the way in which the titles of these persons come out, there's overlap in the titles. There are, there are titles that are distinctive to each person, and then there are titles that are overlapping. So, for example, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, the one, the first, says, I am the Alpha and the, and the Omega. And then Christ says, I am the first and the last. Kind of the same thing. And you get to the end of the book of Revelation, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Christ says, I am the first and the last. And then Christ says, and I am the Alpha and the Omega. You can look at who's on the throne. And if you've ever read through the book of Revelation, you might get a little confused because you're like, who's on the throne? Is it it the Father on the throne? Is it the Lamb on the throne? Are there two different thrones? Are they on the same throne? Are they thrones next to each other? And it's kind of confusing to read, right? Why? Because they're both on the throne. They're two persons, but they're one God. And you could go through different ways. So what I want to do this morning here in our brief time is I just want to take that step this morning and, and, and press in, because this is eternal life, to press in and know the persons of the Trinity as God has revealed them to us. And even in this greeting, which is kind of the preface to the whole book of Revelation, I want to step in and you know, not just give credit to John, Paul, George, and Ringo, but realize you know we might not know who's doing what unless we step into the family. If we really step in and press in, we can know oh, George Martin is responsible for this. You know? let's, let's understand the, the first. Let's understand the second and the third as, as God reveals themself to us. Okay? And they are all equal, equally God, as we can see even in this greeting, grace and peace coming from um, equally, all of them. And yet, they are different. How are they different? They're different in this one way, and only, as I've said before, only in this one way, in their relations of origin to each other. They are different in how... How they are related, how they have a relationship with one another. It's the only way they're different. They're not different in their characteristics or how much of God that they have. Each of them equally is God by himself. And yet, they are different in, in, in their relationship, only in their relationship to one another. So the first is the unbegotten one, the fountainhead. The second is begotten and comes from. The third is proceeding from the first two together. And you say, well, that's it? That's how they're different? Yeah, it's the only way in which they're different. And yet, that defines how they relate to one another and spills over into how we can understand and know them and how we experience the acts of God because we can distinguish these differences in the way that they love us, in the way that we're treated. So let's look at these, okay? Let's take some time to look at these. The first one, okay, verse four, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come, okay? What is that? What does that mean? Well, that's a, we could say a riff, on the Old Testament name of God. God came and revealed himself initially, really secondly. He said, I am Yahweh. I am the one who is, or the one who is to come. And what do we see here again? Revelation tying everything up together is, is that this is a further elaboration of that. He's the one who was, who is, who is to come. You say, well, okay, well, what does that mean? What does that mean, friends? That means that for us, he's got it all covered. That means that this one that is identifying himself here is the one who has everything under control. That means there's no time or nothing in your past that is beyond his reach to heal. There's nothing that you're facing now that does not fall under his watchful eye. There's no fear about your future, which he has not provided for already. He's got it all covered from beginning to end. He's got the plan. You know, you ever, you ever, be, have you ever been in a situation where you feel grateful that there's somebody in the situation or somebody in the group who has the plan? Like, this person knows what to do, knows what's going on. Do you ever feel like, raise your hand if you ever had that experience. Like, yeah, I can think of this situation. Right? When you have that feeling, you're getting a little taste of the one who is and who was and is to come. The one who always has a plan for the whole universe, for everything that happens. He's the one who's in control, who's got it. And that kind of experience, when we have that, we should think, ah, it's a little taste of this one. I had that experience recently um, when I was sitting in what what used to be called a session meeting. Now, I know that some of you are kind of new to Presbyterianism. You come in here, like, what is all this terminology? Strange terminology. What's a session? I don't know what that means. It's just the word that that they use to refer to the, the governing board of elders in this church. And uh, I say you don't really have to learn that word anymore because we have a new word. Uh, for it at ironworks and that comes from this uh, this woman sabrina who works in our office and sabrina has etched herself um, her influence on ironworks church by coming up with a new name for the board that governs ironwork church she said oh aren't we talking about the ironing board and that stuck and so now it's the ironing board thank you sabrina Uh, it's no longer the session. So that's what we call ourselves. So I was at one of these ironing board meetings. And uh, it was going on and on into the night as these things tend to do. What I was noticing is that every issue that came up, all these different issues that came up, uh, Darren Pesnell, a senior pastor here, he had an answer for what we needed to do. Like these are all sorts of different issues. Some were administrative issues, Some were technological issues, like something with a computer system. Some were, of course, pastoral issues that we were addressing. And everyone that came up, Darren was like, well, this is how we deal with that. And this is probably what we should do that. And there was discussion, and the elders were making a decision. But he was saying, and this is how we've handled that in the past. Every single issue. I remember, I was sitting there thinking, boy, I am so glad he's in the room. You know? I am so glad that he's here uh, to be able to handle each of these issues. He always had a plan. That was a little taste. That was a little taste of the one who is and was and is to come. You have this little taste when you're daddies, right? Those of us who are daddies know that, you know, when our kids are young, we're ostensibly where the buck stops, right? And we're like, okay, well, daddy has the answer. Let's go ask daddy, right? And you can go ask daddy this. You can go ask daddy that. Daddy is the one with all the answers, Right? Yeah. Then, we grow, then they grow up, right? And they realize we don't have all the answers. But for that one brief shining moment, there's springtime called the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. That God giving us his fallible uh, husbands and fathers he uses that, that little taste of this experience. That's what we're talking about. This is the one that we're talking about. And so, kids, this is why you're drawing the picture now. You should be drawing of gathering around daddy, getting the answer from daddy, right? This is our great God. He is the one who precedes all things. He is the one who brings all things to fulfillment. And he's the one whose purpose no one, no one can frustrate. That's our great God. Verse 4, know him, know him. We go on to a second one, right? The sevenfold spirit before the throne. And Revelation 19 says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That is, in our world, this one is the one who bears testimony, who bears witness to the truth of the first two. And that's why he's represented standing there before the throne. His dominant concern is for truth. And he's saying what is true about God being in their company. Have you ever been around someone uh, who always has the right thing to say? Ever been around someone where you're like, wow, this person always seems to have the right word for this, for this meeting this particular need. It's kind of like an apple of gold in a setting of silver. You You ever have that experience? When you do, that's the experience of this one. This one who has the right things to say, who... Who brings forth the right testimony, has the right words to meet the need, that is the sevenfold spirit. He's a blazing lamp fire. He lights up God. I could put it that way. He lights up the glory of his work. Have you come to know God? Do you know who is, who's responsible, who gets credit on that linear note of the album? If you've come to know God, that's the sevenfold spirit. He is the one who is, as it says, seven eyes that go into the world. He is God's presence in in any situation in which God is working. The presence of God, his eyes in the world. In fact, this is really my biggest sadness for you. If you're here and you are not a believer, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is my sadness for you, is that there, there is a profound aloneness with which you must live that we do not have as Christians. In our alone times, we know that we are not alone because of the sevenfold spirit, the fullness of God's presence. Now, you might be hearing you say, well, you know, I'm not a believer. I don't believe this Christianity stuff, but I don't, I don't feel this profound aloneness. I would say, I would encourage you to be honest about this. You don't feel it all the time because you have Many things that can fill up your lives. Many people whom you love who fill up your lives. Many activities that you do. And those are good things. But what happens when those things actually are removed? And if you're honest with what what you're really feeling, if you are not a believer, when, when you drop your kids off to college, when your spouse dies... When you, go out, when you wake up in the middle of the night, you go out on the porch and you are just by yourself. I'm talking about those moments when you feel profoundly alone. Like, is I, am I all there is? Because, friends, all those things will be removed. All those good things in our lives that fill up our lives, they will be taken eventually from us. And at those moments, do you feel, do you understand that there is one with you? Or do you you feel then this profound aloneness? This is my sadness for you and my hope, that's why, that you may meet this one through the sevenfold spirit. Because if you see God working in the world, if you somehow experience God in your side, yourself, or around you, that's the sevenfold spirit. Know him. Know him. So you know, I'm, I'm bringing these things out so that we, these things can come into our worship, can come into your thinking, your appreciation of God when you are praising Him. They should come into your praise. These different characteristics of the individual persons of the Trinity. You can praise each one individually. And you say, "Does that sound weird?" If that sounds weird to you, it shouldn't sound weird to you. You know, once in a while, like the Apostles' Creed, we say that the Nicene Creed, which says, "We believe." In the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped. Right? So yes, it is good to worship. And if, and if you want to know God, it means stepping into the reality that he is three and one. And you can distinguish these three, even though it's one God always working together. So this is, this is what we do if we know God as he has revealed Himself. This is eternal life for us. Okay, finally, lastly, verse five, we get to the one who freed us from our sins, right? And this is the one you know. This is the one you know and love. This is the front man. It's like you may not have appreciated George Martin, but you know John and Paul, right? And this is the one that we know so much about, uh, Jesus Christ, you know, this, this title that we're used to, that we use, Jesus Christ, and actually the rest of the New Testament is, is used to using, that title, Jesus Christ as, as that, appears three times uh, in the book of Revelation. And all three times are right here in this passage. After this, he's not called Jesus Christ anymore. He's called many things and many extraordinary titles he gets, but not Jesus Christ. Why would that be? Well, I would suggest to you, this, this is this preface here, these first six verses, are, are the trailer for the rest of the book, which is the movie of Revelation. And this is like the teaser. What, what the book is saying is, what John is saying here is, "You know Jesus Christ. You're going to meet him in this book. You're going to see Jesus Christ in this book, but you're going to see him as you have never seen him before." is yes. Christ is in this book and throughout this book, but you are gonna meet him in ways you have never met him before. That is the promise of the book of Revelation. And it's kind of exciting, you know? It's, it's, it's very cool. What we're getting here is an invitation to like the backstage tour of God. What we're getting is, is sort of like the behind-the-scenes look at heaven. That's what the book of Revelation is promising to us. It's like we get the backstage pass, you know, to the after show party. And so we're, we're being invited, and you can, you can think about it, we have these three persons sitting at their table, sloshing their beers saying at the after show party, saying, come on, hang out with us. You know, we'd, we'd like you to know us, you know. And you're like, me? Oh, yeah. It's like you, yeah, come on. That's what we have here in the book of Revelation. I hope you're excited about it, uh, like I am, to come into this backstage party. And kids, that's why now, if you're, if you're still doodling, you should be doodling about this table that you're being invited to join in this, in this time. We're being invited to their table. And so, uh, to briefly introduce Jesus Christ to us, this one who freed us from our sins, uh, again, we start with the relation. He is the one who is of the first. The only difference. And so that comes out in him being the one who stepped forward to be sent for our redemption. He is the sent one, always in the Bible. He is the one who is sent to accomplish this plan, to make it happen, and carry out the ministry. And, you know, one scholar, Beasley Murray, did a great job in verse 5. He said, you know, if you look at verse 5, those three things that describe Christ, it's really describing all of his activity, all of his ministry. First, he's the, the witness, which testifies, it's talking about his ministry in life. Then he's the firstborn of the dead, that's talking about his ministry of his death and resurrection. And then it's talking about him as ruler of kings, that is his second coming, when he brings all things to consummation. So what we have here is everything that Jesus did as our champion, and he is our champion. So one thing that I I just have to point out here before we come to celebrate what he's done for us at the table, one thing I have to point out is verse six, because this is something you have to know about the Trinity. If you really want to know God, if you really want to know him, this is something you have to know, that everything that the persons of the Trinity do They do for each other. They do for each other first. We tend to think, well, it's all for us. You know, he's doing this for us. But actually, no, the reason why he's really doing it, if you look at verse 6, all of a sudden, the Father pops up again. Christ is making this kingdom of priests to serve the Father. You know why God, why Christ has done what he's done to save us all? In order to make a kingdom of priests to serve the Father, he's doing it for him. We tend to think, well, you know, he did it for us, and you know, we benefit from it, but love spills over, but that's not real. You know why he's really doing it? He's doing it to serve the first. That's why the members of the Trinity always do what they do. So, you know, it makes us sort of like the kid at the bedroom door. Kids finally come to this stage, the age, where they realize they're looking, they realize, you know what? Daddy and mommy have something together, and like, I'm not a part of it, right? And it's a little bit upsetting because the kid realized, wait a second, I'm supposed to be in the middle of everything, right? It's all about me. And they realized, no, you actually, daddy and mommy had this love that was there long before you were there, and it will be there long after you're gone. <laughs> and yeah, you, you, you benefit from it. It spills over into you, but that actually wasn't about you. It's about them. In fact, you come out of their love for one another. That's why you're here, because of their love for one another. That's what we're like looking at God here in verse 6. It's really about what's going on between them. And surely we benefit from it, but, you know, we're like the kid at the bedroom door. Well, that's where we're at. He has done what he's done to make this uh, kingdom of priests for his father. He has freed us from his sin from our sins. By his blood, he has become the witness, the martyr for us. To him be glory and dominion forever. Isn't this a wonderful God? Say amen. 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 Please stand with me as we celebrate what he's done.